According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me, if you would, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. This will be our second class in the Great Commission, episode 12. Episode 12, in the final portion of the Harmony of the Gospels, that is simply titled uh, Resurrection Through the Ascension. Uh, The Resurrection was episode 1, the Ascension is episode 13. So uh, you see how close we are. We have the Great Commission here in episode 12, and then the Ascension in episode 13. And our 10-year series uh, will come to a close at uh, a very near point of time. All right, Matthew 28. The eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but were doubtful. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but second-guessed, or second-thought. They worshipped him, but they wavered. I think that's my best translation. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but they wavered. And uh, remove the words, just cross them off, the words, some. It's not some of them were doubtful. All of them. Eleven of them saw him. Eleven of them wavered. And we see what what this is about. Did those doors get unlocked? They did. Okay. All right. Well, as we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we're filled with the Spirit, that distractions are set aside, that our mind is properly uh, oriented towards the truth of God's Word. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, for the privilege we have to assemble together. We ask for your hand and blessing upon our time this morning, that you would set aside distractions, that you would hedge us about, you would drive any demons nearby just as far from us as you can. And Father, bless our time of study. Open our minds to understand the scriptures. We thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. All right. A mountain in Galilee was the location for this event. A mountain in Galilee is the location for this event. The geography is helpful because it helps us to distinguish between this event and other events, particularly uh, when the disciples are fishing and he's walking along the shore. Uh, the Do you love me more than these chapter of John chapter 21? It's a different setting than what we have going on here. Or in the uh, Jerusalem setting when he says, remain in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. <clears throat> we have uh, a passage in Luke 24 that A.T. Robertson, anyway, has blended with this event uh, to put uh, Matthew 28 together with Luke 24, and I think they ought to be separated, and I think the geography is a part of that. Um, In any event, we're going to use the outline to distinguish between Matthew 28 and Luke 24, and I'll make that clear as we get to uh, point four in the study and the points that that follow. But this is the one appointment that they have. The one appointment he gave them before he uh, was taken from them. Again, as we look at it here, the 11 disciples, and that's in contrast to the guards. Um, Remember, in Matthew 28, we don't have the road to Emmaus. We don't have the do you love me more than these. We don't have the upper room with Thomas absent and then the upper room with Thomas present. Uh, Everything that we've been studying in these recent episodes from episode 1 all the way through now episode 13 or 12. Is it? 12, yes. 
from episode 1 to episode 12, all of that is, is uh, absent, okay? or most, much of that is absent. We do have the uh, report of the guards here to the Sanhedrin. So um, the appearance to the women, we see. And uh, so the guards go to the chief priest and they're told, well, here, take this bribe and t- start telling everybody that uh, the disciples stole the body. And so they took the money in verse 15. They did so as had been instructed. The story was widely spread among the Jews and it is to this day. So the, the Roman guards started to tell the story that the disciples stole the body. And that uh, legend, that story uh, was told all the way and continued to be told uh, to the, uh, the very decade here where the Gospel of Matthew was written. So that's what they were doing. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated and when they saw him they worshiped but wavered all right so the mountain in Galilee is a location for this event the mountain is not named uh, I showed you Mount Tabor which is the uh, traditional mountain I won't go back and look at that again but in any event when did he designate this when did he designate this well As they walked to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus instructed the eleven to meet him in Galilee after the resurrection. And just a a page back, or a couple pages back, in Matthew 26, you observe this, in Matthew 26, 32. As they walked to the Garden of Gethsemane, and they did not all reach that Garden of Gethsemane. Only three did. Eleven went out, because remember the traitor had already gone to go fetch the soldiers. But the eleven went out, they sang a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, but then only three of them, Peter, James, and John, were brought into the garden to pray as, uh, as our Lord went in there to pray. The other eight, who knows where they went? They went to their homes, or they went to where they were staying, in uh, whatever residences they found uh, to stay in there in uh, the Mount of Olives. Plus, Matthias and Judas, I believe, were also with these 11. So, uh, Matthew 26, 32 um, Verse 30 says, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. So this is their one appointment. After I have been raised, they have a scheduled appointment in Galilee. And it's the only scheduled appointment they have. Everything else that's happened has been unscheduled, uh, has been... um, uh, spontaneous, you know, the surprise pop-in visits, the the disguised, uh, you know, walking along the beach. Do you have any fish? The um, the surprise appearance to the women, where she thought he was the gardener and things like that. The Emmaus Road uh, uh, disciples. None of those were scheduled. None of those were promised. <clears throat> None of those were, you know, after I'm raised, I'll uh, meet you on the beach for for a fish breakfast. Or after I've been raised, uh, you know, make sure you're walking along the Emmaus Road. I'll see you there. None of those were scheduled. Only one event is scheduled, and this is it, the Great Commission. All right? And that's significant because it is the one event that is universal for the body of Christ. That is the imperative, the make disciple imperative. Okay? We'll, we'll, we'll discuss that. And, uh, and it, I, I think, was not just these 11, but it's going to encompass the whole 500 as well. Of all the other appearances, which one is best suited to correspond with the appearance to more than 500 brethren at one time? Okay, To me, it's this mountaintop here in Galilee is the only venue with sufficient space, uh, you know, seating capacity for that number of people to see him at one time. 
in any event. So as they walked to the garden. Now, secondly, after the resurrection, the women at the tomb were instructed to remind the disciples about the Galilean appointment, not only to remind the disciples, but it's also referenced, <coughs> my brethren, in Matthew 28, 7. So we have a, uh, we have a uh, verse 7 and also verse 10. I think we should add verse 10 to the slide as well. After the resurrection, uh, the women are uh, at the empty tomb and an angel is telling them, uh, do not be afraid. This is uh, Matthew 28, 5. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said, come see the place where he was lying. And then verse 7, go quickly and tell his disciples, Matthetai, disciples, that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Now, Galilee is a pretty generic term. I mean, Galilee speaks of a region. Galilee speaks of an area, you know, like central Texas. Well, can you be a little bit more precise? Because that could include a lot of places, okay? Uh, Galilee includes a whole lot of places, towns and villages and cities and Jewish settlements and Gentile settlements. Sephora was a, was basically a Roman city, a, a, a Greek city, and uh, so forth. Um, but we find out here that it's not just you know, some random spot in Galilee, just make sure you're in the boundaries of Galilee and uh, he'll find you. No, that's not the nature of it. There was actually a very precise, specific mountain that was designated and uh, was not recorded in chapter 26 or not recorded in chapter 28 until you get to verse 16, that there was a specific mountain which Jesus had designated. Okay? Be that as it may. In addition to the disciples, though, the women were told to uh, go tell the disciples, and they started to do that. They started to do that. Uh, They left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy. They ran for the purpose of reporting it to the disciples. That was their intent when they took off running. But uh, evidently, something happened in between when they took off running and before they arrived at the disciples. And uh, because when Jesus then meets them and greets them, they have not yet told the disciples and um, we, we know because of mark and luke that they actually had great fear and at some point even though they took off well here we have fear also uh, in verse eight quickly with fear and great joy at a certain point after they took off running uh, fear and joy kind of melted into the fear the joy went away and fear kind of stopped them in their tracks and jesus uh, greeted them and impelled them along it's like you're halfway through a marathon and you want to stop and then, uh, you know, who comes alongside you and says, no, keep going, keep going. And tries to recharge that joy so that you keep on going. Anyway, you can go back and listen to those messages if you want. Uh, but then what does he tell them? He says, do not be afraid. Same thing the angel said. Go and take word. And here it's not my disciples. Here it's not my disciples. And I mentioned this last week because I failed to observe it and failed to teach it when we were in this episode. Um, it's not Mathetai there. It's, it's brethren. Okay, so it's not disciples, it's brethren. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee and there they will see me. Now we could take this as exchangeable terms and who are my brothers but those who follow me and who are my mothers and my brothers. And It could refer to the disciples, but it could also refer to his brothers, which we know are recipients of post-resurrection ecclesiastical apostolic commissions and hand of fellowship extensions. Okay, 
James and Jude and Simon and Joseph, the brothers of Jesus, were also commissioned as apostles. 1 Corinthians 15, that he appeared to James and then to all the apostles, we're told. In any event, if uh, if we're going to blend James and the brothers, the human brothers of our Savior, if uh, if we're going to include them in this, then perhaps verse 10 is also uh instructions so that the women will go get james and the brothers and that uh, james and the brothers will also be on the the correct galilean mountain when the disciples are there and uh so forth and the 500 all at one time will also be there to see the lord so a mountain in galilee is the location for this event that's main point one with sub points a and b then point c Seeing him, the eleven worshipped him and wavered. Seeing him, the eleven worshipped him and wavered. And we really want to make sure that we're not uh, we're not singling out the waverers from the beholders. That uh, these verbs, these activities, are being accomplished by the eleven disciples in verse sixteen. The same subject. There's no new subject that's introduced. And there's no real reason to try to um, zero in on a subset. Okay, Like I, like we, I might do if uh, we talk about those who came to church this morning, which would be all y'all, and then those of all y'all who sat on this side of the room or who sat on that side of the room or who sat in the nursery watching the kids or who sat in the, in the uh, cry room. Don't look. Because they they got here late. We're talking about a <laughs> we're not talking about subsets. Okay, we can do that. It's very easy to do that. I told you not to look. All right, it's very easy to do that. And there's there's simple language in the Greek to do that. I don't believe we have it here. I believe what we have here is language in the Greek that talks about the eleven disciples who went, who worshipped, and who wavered. They went, they worshipped, they wavered. And it's the same they every time. Okay? If I'm going to say they, then who am I talking about when I say they? Well, it could be ambiguous unless there's context where I was just recently talking about a group. And if I was talking about a group, maybe my children, they hate it when I, when I illustrate with them. Right? But what did I just do? I mentioned my children... And then I said, they hate it when I use them for illustrations. Clearly, they is my children. Because that's the connection we make. Greek does the same thing. Every language does the same thing. Hebrew does the same thing. Every language does the same thing. If you're talking about a group and then you just use the the pronoun they, the context tells you what you're dealing with. And that's what we have here. They went, they worshipped, they wavered. They went, they worshipped, they wavered. Someone should write a quartet piece for that or some kind of a gospel music song they went they worshiped they wavered there's an article in the uh commentary the word biblical commentary i think that addresses this very well uh with the grammatical details and with some of the other uh commentaries that support the view and don't support the view really the problem is is commentaries are afraid of this and translators are afraid of this jerome struggled with this when he translated the vulgate and how he put this into Latin. And uh, the tendency is to make only some of them doubtful. 
and and then to try to view this as somehow a throwback connection to doubting Thomas in the in the upper room event. Okay, well this isn't the upper room event. This is a mountain in Galilee. The upper room event was in Jerusalem. Okay, and uh, that was the night you know the Easter Sunday night, that the evening of Sunday, the uh, the fifth, and then eight days later on that Monday when doubting Thomas finally stopped doubting. Right, this is a mountain in Galilee. Some 40 days later, or less than 40 days later, okay? So, um, at some point of time in that 40-day resurrection ministry, this event took place. I might be sneezing in a moment. No, okay. So, there's a a good article there in the Word Biblical Commentary that uh, addresses these wavering disciples. And... uh, Really, is it a problem that they wavered? Is it a problem that these 11 guys, and I think, like I say, Matthias and Judas likewise were there, the brothers were there, is it a problem that they wavered? All right. First of all, the verb to waver is the verb distazo, D-I-S-T-A-Z-O, distazo. Die, meaning to, like die, by, dis and bis, dis, tadzo, tadzo. And the idea is you're having second thoughts, second guessing, second thinking, dis, tadzo. To doubt, to waver. It's not a regular word for doubt. It's not a word, uh, opistos. It's not lack of faith. It's not disbelief. It's not, and we we saw that in the disbelief application, it wasn't that they were, that he was weak or struggled. He was just choosing not to place his faith. He was choosing not to believe. And that's a a different conversation. We had it back then. Uh, But this actually is a second guessing, a second thinking, a second, taking a second uh, look at things. And um, depending on the context, depending on the rationale, could be a positive thing. Um, could be a negative thing. And the context, I think, will make clear which is which. And we only have two uses of it in the Bible. There's only really two ways to look at it, biblically speaking. Now, there's some church fathers that use it as well. And I think that helps us only so far as it gives us a it gives us a better flavor for the, the, the semantic range that the term can be used in. But more than that, it also shows us the impact that in the early church they had about being a double-minded man, unstable in all your ways. How it is that if you're double-minded, if you are constantly second-guessing everything, you better ask yourself, why? Are you noble-minded and you're just simply searching the Scriptures to see if these things are so? Are you noble-minded when you receive a message and you're simply uh, evaluating it based on the Word of God and so you can fully embrace it? There's nothing wrong with that. You have to be persuaded before you can believe. You must be patho-persuaded before you can pastuo-believe, right? So that's valid. But if you are of a double-minded sort that you're just second-guessing on stuff you've already been convinced of, that's a problem. And what that shows is that you're not firm. You're not stable. You're just wavering, right? Well, he said this, but, right? God promised I will never leave you nor forsake you, but uh, I kind of feel forsaken right now. I kind of feel left right now. 
Well, the promise is the promise. Why are you second-guessing it? Am I really saved? Why are you second-guessing that? The promise is the promise. So there are there is a scope, and what I really want to do is when I illustrate with this, as we work through these passages, I want to see that when is it, when is it uh, a distrust of God? And when is it a second guess that's not a distrust of God? Whereby we just pause for a moment as a gut check, okay? We pause for a moment and say, am I going to do this? No, that's the Lord, let's do it, okay? At which point that momentary, you notice they didn't, they, they worshiped and they wavered, they didn't bail on him. So how long did that wavering last? Near as we can tell, the wavering was over when he came up to them, in verse 18, and spoke to them. There's your solution. If you have a moment of waver, then just draw nearer to the Lord. Draw nearer to the Lord and listen to what he has to say. And we don't have another mention of wavering in the rest of the, in the, rest of the text. I think it's a wavering test is like any other kind of a test like a lust test or a stealing test or whatever temptation is. If a thought hits you, you're not sinning because you were tempted. A thought hits you. What are you going to do with it? You, you pause for a moment and say, oh. And then you say, oh, wait a minute. That's, no. Take that thought captive. Don't even go there. Okay? Don't even go there. The temptation's not a sin. Wavering in itself is not a sin. The underlying reasons why you wavered could be the bigger problem. So, let's see what we're talking about. Because I don't want to go all psychobabble this morning. Let's keep in the scriptures. Only used twice in the Bible, both by Matthew. Back to chapter 14. You remember this. Matthew 14. Here's John the Baptist. And he's going to lose his head. And it's interesting, in this early paragraph, and he said he's in prison, so he sends a couple of disciples. He can't go and ask the question himself. And I find it interesting. This is the paragraph that everybody wants to say shows that John the Baptist was wavering. And the word's not even in that paragraph. The word's later on for Peter in the boat when Jesus is walking on the water. <laughs> okay. So don't blame John. He's not wavering. He's not wavering at all. He's as strong as he's ever been. He's the greatest of those born among women. But we get down later in the chapter after Jesus feeds the 5,000 and then he sends them in the boat and goes walking on the water. So verse 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. So the crowds see the disciples depart in the boat. All right, bye-bye disciples, boat goes. And then Jesus sends the crowds away. Full view, the crowds now know that Jesus did not get in the boat with his disciples. And then after he sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. The boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now they should have made it all the way across by now, by this time. But because of the winds and the waves and so forth, they're still struggling. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And uh, by the way, there's a great gospel song for this that uh, is on my newest CD uh, called uh, Water Walking God. And it's, uh, it's pretty neat. I didn't like it at first. Just the title, Water Walking God, struck me odd. But um, it's, it's got a catchy tune and I've started to like it. Um, and, the, and the chorus makes a great point. 
He says, you're not that lost and you're not too far. You know, sure, you're in a boat and you're out there in the water somewhere, but you're not that lost and you're not too far. And he can come to where, wherever you are. All right. And uh, anyway, it's, it's, it's a good song. So when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. They cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Stop being afraid. So once again, the answer is drawing near to the Lord and listening to what he has to say. It's a provision for fear. It's a provision for uh, doubting. It's a provision for wavering. Now here's the problem. Peter then said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water and came toward Jesus. Now don't knock Peter for this because we're the other 11 guys, right? (laughs) He gets such a bum rap because he starts to doubt and he starts to sink. And okay, yeah, that's a problem. But at least he's out of the boat. Okay, so don't knock Peter so much as those chickens that stayed in the boat. So, Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, came toward Jesus, but seeing the wind, he became frightened. And that's our term. This is our term in verse 31. No, 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 no. It's our, I, I'm still in verse 30. The term is, is in verse 31. Why did you doubt? Why did you distadzo? Why did you second think, second guess? So seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And it's still the right procedure. If you're frightened, if you're terrified, all these terms, terrified in verse 26, frightened in verse 30, and then doubt in verse 31. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, all I got pissed off, little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you waver? So now wavering can come with a small faith, with a small pistos. Oli pistos. Oliga pistos. Oliga pistos can cause you to waver, as it did here. Is that what it did on the mountain when the eleven worshipped him and wavered? Okay. We'll have to consider that, because they were worshiping. It was true worship. It doesn't say it was phony worship or false worship. They worshiped, but they wavered. All right, so when they got into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped. How about that? In both passages, we have a tandem with wavering and worship. I find that interesting. So those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. So here's our verb, distazo, to doubt, to waver, to have second thoughts. And then the idea that these guys, and in the translation problem, well, only some of them wavered, you know, because why? Because they can't all waver? Why is that? Well, it's not compatible with their worship. Sure it is. Here, here they worshiped. There they worshiped. Different aspects there. If you're having a second thought, just for the moment, you're having a second thought, what are you going to do about it? Okay, well, draw nearer to the Lord and listen to what he has to say. Certainly don't panic, don't run, don't, you know, what are you going to do? Okay, so there's the only two places where waver occurs, distaz. And again, it's not, uh, it's not unbelief. It's not doubt. It's not fear. It happens because of a little belief. And it happens because with, with, some, in, with some kind of fear, maybe, in the, in the context. But the word itself is not a fear word or a doubt word. The word itself is simply a waver, a second thought, a hesitation. That's, in fact, uh, does Holman use hesitate? Or one of them does hesitate. I like hesitate. Hesitate's good. 
But waver has the, has the alliteration with, with worship. <laughs> Doubt. Okay. So, hesitate. Just a moment's hesitation where you just pause. And then you either have to proceed or stop. But that hesitation, that waver is just for a moment. As a second guess. As a second, as a second, uh, as a gut check, we might say. Peter had that gut check. And so he said, save me, Lord. Great prayer. (laughs) When you waver, do the save me, Lord prayer and keep going. All right. That's another book. Um, Who's the author on that? When you're going through hell, keep going. (laughs) All right. Now, as I say, the... uh, these are the only two New Testament uses, but we have several, several uh, references in the Church Fathers, and many of them are similar. Uh, I just gave two samples. I think I could have given you five or six that were all similar to this. Okay? The Apostolic Fathers viewed second thought hesitations as coming from a double-minded distrust of God. As coming from a double-minded distrust of God. And if that's the case, then sure, we've got a big problem. But the big problem isn't the wavering per se, I, I would say it's the double-minded distrust of God behind it. That's what's got to get confessed. That's what's got to get remedied. If all it is is just an oligopistos, a, a small faith that needs reinforced, well, then reinforce it. And a momentary wavering in that regard is easily remedied. Simply draw near to the Lord and listen to what he has to say. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And so if it's an oligopistos little faith, all it needs is to be encouraged. Encourage the faint-hearted. Okay? As we understand that we're to, uh, you know, we've got different instructions depending on whether uh, the person is uh, out of line or not. Admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with all men. Yeah, they have a little bit of discernment with it, all right? I mean, don't, don't just chew them out like they're unruly. They're not unruly. They're faint-hearted. They need encouragement. Don't uh, throw them out of the church as some kind of rebel. They're simply weak. We're to accept the one who is weak in faith and not for the purpose of passing judgment on their opinions. Let's build them up. If they're weak, uh, what are you doing to edify them? <laughs> right? Um, yeah, if they're unruly, then yeah, admonish them. And if they don't respond to the admonishment, there's, there's further steps. There's, di- there's distinctions. And we've got a, that's part of the wisdom of, uh, of, of leading a flock or raising children or husbanding a wife or, you know, Lots of applications. So, but this is how they took it. And, and in these instances, where they would use the verb distazo anyway, when the church fathers used the verb distazo, they used it in context where there was a double-minded distrust of God. And that's not an oligopistos little faith. That's actually an opistos no faith, lack of faith, a distrust of God, which to me is the bigger issue. So, uh, 1 Clement 11.2, 1 Clement 23.3, those are the two examples I gave as for instances in the, uh, in the, uh, on the slide. There, are, there is more than that. Did I wake up my mouse? I don't see my mouse anywhere. All right. That is so bizarre. Okay. Time to get rid of the mouse. I've disliked it since 
the day I took it home. I need to find a computer cat to eat my computer mouse. All right. First Clement 11.1, 1, and we'll make it bigger for you. And, uh, well, first of all, let me just show. Do I need to show all that? Probably not. All right. Because of his hospitality and godliness, Lot was saved from Sodom when the entire region was judged by fire and brimstone. In this way, the master clearly demonstrated that he does not forsake those who hope in him, but destines to punishment and torment those who turn aside. Of this, his wife was destined to be a sign. Okay? So we're going to use this verb destazo with respect to Lot's wife. Okay? Because she doubted, she wavered, she looked back. Okay? Now the Hebrew, of course that's Hebrew, the Septuagint does not use... Maybe the Septuagint does use this. I meant to look at that. Anyway, here's uh, Clement writing about Lot's wife. So, uh, after leaving with him, she changed her mind and no longer agreed. And as a result, she became a pillar of salt to this day, that it might be known to all that those who are double-minded, those who are double-minded, see, that's the problem. Those who are double-minded... Uh, and those who question the power of God fall under judgment and become a warning to all generations. And even our New Testament says, remember Lot's wife, right? Okay, that's our application. That's supposed to be our, our uh, illustration of not walking by faith and the example of what we're supposed to do as we walk by faith. So again, when I read things like this, this is not Bible. Please understand this is not Bible. First Clement is not God-breathed and inspired but it does show you a contemporary of the early church. It's, it's actually older than Revelation. Probably written about the same time or even a year or two before the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation. So the canon is not yet closed when this epistle was written, but it's still not Bible. Okay. The second example comes in uh, 23.3. Let this scripture be far from us where he says, wretched are the double-minded and those who doubt in their soul. There's our uh, Destadzo, and say, we heard these things even in the days of our fathers, and look, we have grown old, and none of these things have happened to us. And so, uh, you fools, compare yourself to a tree or take a vine, and uh, starts to show a, an illustration there. Backing up a little bit. The Father, who is merciful in all things and ready to do good, has compassion on those who fear Him. So have you lost your fear of the Lord? That's the problem. And gently and lovingly bestows His favors on those who draw near to Him with, notice now, singleness of mind. Remember the, what Paul talked about? It, the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Okay? And if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. Draw near to me. Okay? These, are, these are the Scripture admonitions, particularly connected with double-mindedness in the book of james therefore let us not be double-minded nor let our soul indulge in false ideas about his excellent and glorious gifts let this scripture be far from us where he says wretched are the double-minded and those who doubt um, in their soul and say we heard these things even in the days of our fathers and look we have grown old and none of these things have happened to us all right so there's two more uses of Distadzo, where it comes down to it. The others, I don't think Barnabas and the Didache, the other examples, 
if they're worth looking at this morning or not. I limited my slide simply to those two examples. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some distadzo were doubtful. Here's your circle on distadzo. As you see, it's only two uses. You see the D in or the dis in distazo, like duo for two. Yeah, there's ten, a total of ten uses in the Apostolic Fathers. One in Josephus, twenty five in the classics. The DDK, Barnabas. The shepherd of Hermes, four uses there. So, yeah, a total of ten. And you get the idea, the impact that this concept was having, the, the second-guess concept, the wavering, that believers shouldn't waver. And that if we're going to be double-minded, that's the problem. And that's what's making us waver. That if we're simply weak in faith, if we're little in faith, then wavering is not as big a deal because we can simply draw near to Christ, we can increase our faith, we can keep on going. But if we're wavering based on a, a double-mindedness, that's actually uh, huge. Okay, And that's the point I'm going to make under point three. Doubt can have no place in our thinking as we pray and as we serve God in the Christian way of life. When we waver, the answer is to draw near. thought about breaking that up i'm still thinking about breaking that up making that a three and a four because what i want to do in fact it would be good let's do that right now on the fly we'll edit the notes because doubt can have no place in our thinking as we pray and as we serve god in the christian way of life and and for that we have romans 14 where we are right now on sunday mornings whatever is not of faith is sin he who doubts is condemned all right so doubt you recognize doubt and wavering are two different aspects, but doubt can have no place in our thinking as we pray and as we serve God. We should be drawing near. We should have faith convictions. Faith convictions. Okay? So I'll have this rewritten on the slide for you before next week, but for now, let's just break that point three down into two halves. Doubt can have no place in our thinking as we pray and as we serve God in the, the Christian way of life. And for that, let's uh, throw in Romans 14. It's not on the slide presently, but we've been studying it so much here in uh, Sunday mornings. Romans 14. 22 and 23. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts or disbelieves, if you're not doubting, if you're not believing, he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. Whatever is not from faith is sin. So doubt can have no place in our thinking. God has not designed the Christian way of life to be a life of guessing, a life of doubting, a life of hoping, oh, hope it works out. I don't really know what I'm doing. You're supposed to. 
The Bible says, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do you know God's will for your life? Are you pursuing God's will for your life? Are you just stumbling along and, well, I don't really know. Okay. I mentioned the other day how uh, how uh, too many Christians are pursuing the Christian way of life like they're, they're, they're Polish mind detectors or something. Okay. You know, it's ridiculous. Whatever is not of faith is sin. He who doubts is condemned if he eats. You can't move forward on a lack of faith basis. Move forward with a faith conviction. So we're asking for with uh, the upcoming uh, Constitution vote and as we proceed. And are we going to uh, amend our Constitution to allow for deaconesses? We haven't had deaconesses. The Constitution was written in 1968. It wasn't even written then either. We simply stole the Baraka Constitution and... and you know, got some white out and changed the name and said, okay, there's our constitution. So it's even older than that. It's older than 1968. Um, are we going to edit it to allow for deaconesses? Because right now all we can have are male voting members serving as deacons. Well, what's your faith conviction? Do you have a faith conviction? Have you studied the scriptures? Have you asked the Father to open your eyes and give that conviction? Don't proceed on the basis of a doubt or, oh, well, I guess, or, oh, well, I don't know. Know what you know and know what you're persuaded of. As uh, he's been teaching us here in Romans 14. So doubt can have no place in our thinking. Point four, when we waver, the answer is to draw nearer. Draw me nearer, nearer, blessed Lord. When we waver, the answer is to draw nearer. See, even if you're not double-minded, you're still going to have a moment. There still may be a time where you, you stop and you just have that second guess. You have that waver. But Peter didn't jump back in the boat, did he? He said, Lord, save me. The answer is not to retreat or run away. The answer is just to draw nearer. That's what they do on this mountain. They wavered, but Jesus drew near and spoke to them. said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. The answer is draw nearer and listen to what he's going to tell you. When we waver, the answer is to draw nearer. All right, James chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, and James chapter 4, verses 3 through 10. Good uh, applications. I know a pastor once who taught the book of James. I know a pastor five times who taught the book of James, not just once. All right. Like I tell them, you know, I teach it often enough or enough and you eventually figured it out. So I've gone to Ukraine to teach Revelation six times. I mean, you know, get better at it every time. James chapter one. Verse five says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. That's a guarantee. He will never deny a believer the wisdom prayer. That is an absolute guarantee. Uh, But he must ask in faith without any doubting. Just like Romans 14 says. He must ask in faith without any doubting for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Where's your stability? Do you have any stability? You're supposed to be stable. Doctrine stabilizes you. As the Word of God builds you up in the faith, you're not tossed by winds of doctrine. 
that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances, see the contrast there? Double-mindedness. You know, man, the barrier to all kinds of things. So, um, God wants us to have stability. The Christian way of life is a life of stability. More than any other stewardship, more than Israel in the Old Testament, more than the Gentiles before Israel, more than the angels before humans, the royal family of God in the present dispensation of the church is the most stable stewardship there's ever been up till now. We have the very provision of God within us. We have the, we're partakers of the divine nature. We have access to the throne of grace in ways that, that no stewardship before us has ever had. So we ask the Father in faith without any doubting. Doubt can have no place in our thinking. When we waver, the answer is to draw nearer. Go over to chapter 4 now and see the follow-up to this. And the slide says 3 through 10. There's a... I debated what kind of context to give to this. Just leave it with verse 8. Draw near to God, He will draw near to you. Or 8 through 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, He will exalt you. Or or even a larger context, submit therefore to God in verse 7, resist the devil, He will flee from you. Seems like there's an even greater context for that. You adulteresses in verse 4. Um, you know, I think what we see here is we see the double-minded man unstable in all his ways, and it gets illustrated right here in this context. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You've actually got a war going on inside of you, and it's your lusts. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious, cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So this is a step even further. In chapter 1, at least you're asking. You're asking with doubt and you're asking with fear, but at least you're asking. Here, you're not even asking. And then you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses. Again, I think this is a a symptom of the double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You're an adulteress. You uh, You want your husband, but you want your lover also. You're an adulteress. Yeah, okay, you want God's provision, but you want the world's provision too. You you like what the cosmos is offering you. You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? God says you can't serve two masters. God says it's me and me only. God says you shall have no other gods before me. Or after me, or besides me, or at all. Because if you have one at all, after me, it's before me. It always is. God says none, him only. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's like believers that want to compromise. And they compromise their faith because of their whatever. Because, uh, well, I'm getting some heat at work. I better lay off the whole Christian thing. Okay, well, I'm getting some kind of, getting some, uh, getting some conflict in the family. Uh, let's just, at this next reunion, let's just not talk about Jesus at the next Christmas gathering. Because it makes uh, some of the extended family members uncomfortable. Well, you want friendship with the cosmos? God says no, that's hostility. 
You want to make yourself a friend of the world? You put yourself back in an adversarial position against God. And God, how does God treat His enemies? Okay? You know, where we're we're, He calls us as His Son, then we're going to make, him, make ourselves our enemy, His enemies? Alright, do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? You think He wrote the Bible for no reason? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us? Why did He give you the Holy Spirit? It's part of His jealousy. It's connected to His jealousy. He loves you like He loves Himself. But He gives a greater grace. You want to start walking in the super grace way of life? Here it is. The greater grace. And that means that we're indwelled with the Holy Spirit. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. We are rejecting the deeds of the flesh. We're not double-minded. We're not unstable. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Because that's the alternative. If you're not being transformed the renewing of your mind, you're being conformed to this world. It's the, it's the, it's the devil. It's his agents. It's his message. It's his philosophy. The doctrines of demons. All right, draw near to God, He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. So now, if your second guessing is because of carnality, get back in fellowship. There's a cleansing procedure. If, uh, if your wavering is not because of carnality, it's just because of a diminished faith, well then draw near. You can still draw near, even if you don't need to cleanse your hands. Draw near, He will draw near to you. Draw near and increase your faith. Draw near and listen to what He has to say. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You've got to start with that. Be miserable. There's a fun imperative. Be miserable. And mourn and weep. And then let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. Anyway. Doubt can have no place in our thinking as we pray and as we serve God in the Christian way of life. When we, when we waver, when we doubt, when we waver, the answer is to draw near. All right. Well, they were worshiping, but they were wavering, so Jesus drew near. Point two. Jesus drew near to the wavering worshipers and bestowed upon them the disciple-maker imperative. The DMI. Jesus drew near to the wavering worshipers and bestowed upon them the disciple-maker imperative. This is why I think that their wavering was only for a moment. Why did He draw near to them? I think they drew near to Him. They wavered for a moment. and And then He drew near to them. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying. Came up and spoke to them saying. So point two in the outline, Jesus drew near to the wavering worshipers and bestowed upon them the disciple-maker imperative. Interestingly enough, He doesn't tell them to stop wavering. (laughs) He just starts giving them content. He takes them right into the realities of what He's teaching them. Because the Word of God will give you the stability. Okay, are you wavering? Are you struggling? Uh, How about if you increase your uh, appetite? How about if you take in a few more Bible classes? How about if you come to a prayer meeting? Okay, there's content in prayer meeting. We can learn. All right, so he drew near 
and bestowed upon them the disciple-maker imperative, the DMI. Uh, Disciple-maker imperative. You're going to hear more and more of that in the coming points. The disciple-maker imperative. Because we don't have... uh, The word great isn't in this passage. The word commission isn't in this passage. It's called the Great Commission. And that's the uh, paragraph heading in the modern English text. They put the pericope heading in there, right? And every Bible has it. Your Bible has it. My Bible has it. In between verse 15 and 16, what does it say? In bold italic print, the Great Commission. Well, anyway. I don't mind... You know, if people call it the Great Commission, I know what they're talking about. I know they're talking about Matthew 28. <clears throat> and it is a commission. It's a charge. It's a command. It's an imperative. And I guess it's great. I, yeah, I wouldn't want to call it not great. <laughs> okay. But it is a disciple-maker imperative. To me, that's a pericope heading that really gets to the point of what the real imperative is of this passage. Not the participles, the imperative. The imperative is make disciples. Go is not an imperative. Baptize is not an imperative. Teach is not an imperative. And uh, lo, I am with you is not an imperative. The imperative mood is make disciples. All right. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. What's that about? Why does he even say that? Why doesn't he just come up to them and say, go and make disciples of all the need? Why does he start to say, because the go has a therefore with it. Go therefore. Okay. As you go, or therefore as you go, would be the best way. The therefore of as you go and make disciples and baptizing and teaching. All of that is the therefore. And why is the therefore? What is the therefore? The therefore is there for the statement we ignore all the time in verse 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Not great authority. All authority. All authority. Everything except what the Father has withheld for his own prerogative. And what the Father has withheld for his own prerogative is receiving the kingdom back in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-eight at the great abdication. Otherwise, it all belongs to the Son right here, right now. It's all His, in heavens and on the earth. All authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. So here's the disciple-maker imperative. Let's start with the realities. Point A, the disciple-maker imperative exists as a reflection of Jesus Christ's by-present authority. The disciple-maker imperative exists as a reflection of Jesus Christ's by present authority. I worded it specifically for that reason so we can grasp an idea here. Not omnipresent, although Jesus is omnipresent. God the Son is omnipresent. And and He has undone His kenosis. We, we know that. We know that He's no longer kenaod. He's no longer laid aside His privileges. Okay? Philippians 2, he laid aside his privileges when he, um, was hum- when he came in the form of a man. Okay, He laid aside his privileges for that form. Well, he's got his new form now. He's in his resurrected form. He's in his resurrected and glorified form. When he came out of the grave on Resurrection Easter Sunday, 
with episode one of the resurrection, kenosis is done. Kanao is undone. He has the full glory he's had since the foundation of the world. He has all of his eternal glory as God the Son. He has full range of access to omniscience and omnipotence, and, and he is no longer operating in the humility of his first advent incarnation because that was the form that he had in mortality. Okay? And so Jesus Christ is omnipresent, not bipresent. He is in heaven. He is on the earth. He's under the earth. He's, he's everywhere. Okay? We understand the omnipresence of, of Trinity everywhere transcending creation beyond space and time and all of that what's emphasized here are two localities the heaven locality and the earth locality and the heaven locality is precisely the dimensional space of god's throne room the dimensional space that's op- that's uh you know occupied by the host of the heavenly host all right we don't know how big it is but that's where the angels are that's their place all right our place is earth their place is heaven now in both places jesus now has absolute authority so visible and invisible humans and angels the full range of moral uh cosmos existence is now subjugated to jesus christ by virtue of his victory at the cross by present reality And the reason why it's being stressed this way is because it connects to us. We have a by-present reality. I'm going to spend quite a bit of time next week enforcing this by-present reality. Because we're, we're bodily here, but spiritually, where is our attention supposed to be fixed? Fix your attention on the things above. Bodily, we're here. But where's my treasure supposed to be laid up? Bodily, we're here. But where am I supposed to be purchasing the uh, uh, salve for my eyes and my clothing, my garments, clothing? And I, I'm participating in a heavenly economy. I'm banking with a heavenly banking account. I'm seated at the right hand of Jesus Christ, even as He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Whatever I bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever I loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. I should be operating with a by-present reality. And of those two presences, okay, I'm not omnipresent, it'd be nice to have a multi-present ability here, okay? I could take a mission trip to Africa and stay here. All right. No, we don't have that. We're monopresent on this in this physical universe. But we're still bi-present in the sense that our reality, and this is bigger than just positional truth. It's not just a, a position or a concept. It is real. We are in the Holy of Holies. We enter within the veil that is His flesh. We, are, we appear before, not just a mercy seat, a throne of grace. We worship God the Father in spirit and in truth. Not in this mountain, nor in that mountain. We worship the Father in spirit and in truth. We have a by-present reality. I'm going to teach that next week. Nobody had this before the Great Commission. 
Nobody had this before the disciple-maker imperative was bestowed upon the bride. The groom blessed the bride with the disciple-maker imperative. And this is our blessing. This is us. And it's on the basis of His authority in heaven and on earth. And, and the only ones that are able to respond to that authority and operate in that context are those who are in Him. The bride of Christ with a by-present reality. We can be reflections of His by-present reality, of His by-present authority. And we're supposed to be. So, the Great Commission is so much bigger than just, you know, give the gospel to every unbeliever you meet. <laughs> it includes that, of course, it includes that. If you come across an unbeliever, then sure, give them the gospel. Tell them the good news. But it's bigger than that. It includes making disciples. In fact, that's what it is, making disciples. So, next week, Lord willing, rapture pending, we'll give you point two in the subpoints A, B, and C. And then we'll give you point three, the imperative itself, and uh, we'll break down the participles and imperatives and give you the A, B, C, D there. And, uh, and then we'll be ready for point four, which takes us then to Luke 24. And in Luke 24, we're back in Jerusalem again, awaiting the ascension and awaiting the, the day of Pentecost, awaiting the Holy Spirit's descent to actually empower and energize this heavenly people to start to digest the heavenly message that uh, has left their head spinning ever since John 13. Okay. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for this truth. I pray, Father, that each one of us would be uh, provoked into considering the by-present reality we operate in. I pray, Father, that uh, if we have any doubting, any wavering, that we would be provoked to draw near and listen to what our Savior is telling us. And that whatever moment of wavering we might have might immediately be overcome with stepping forward and drawing near to You. That uh, might simply be a moment of little faith and not a much longer process of of double-mindedness and instability and, and uh, lack of faith. Father, thank you for making these things clear. Continue to make them clear in the coming days and weeks. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.